Welcome back, everyone. Today on The Joseph Carlson Show. On a TV interview, we have Seth Klarman. This guy is a highly respected investor that's beat the market for a long period of time. He's considered a super investor. He manages a portfolio of over $5 billion. Well, he just did an interview today where he declared that we're in, quote, an everything bubble. What is an everything bubble? How does it impact us as investors? And what can we do about it? We're going to be discussing that in this episode as we look through this interview. Now, we have another big headline here. There was an internal court document, which you can only get these through court documents and through lawsuits. But this one revealed an internal goal that the CEO of Microsoft had. Satya Nadella set a goal of $500 billion in revenue for Microsoft by 2030. That was their personal inside goal for the company. Now, 2030 is about seven years away, and growing the revenue to that amount has certain implications on the free cash flow, the free cash flow per share, the earnings growth, the yield of the company, the amount of buybacks. We can infer a lot of valuation based on that goal if it became reality. So I went through and did all the math. Assuming Satya Nadella is correct with his goal, what is Microsoft going to be worth in 2030? Now, we also have some news coming out of Vegas. One of the owners of one of the best properties in Vegas, which is the Bellagio. This is one of the few casinos that Vici does not own in Vegas. Well, there's a rumor going around that Blackstone, the current owner of this property, is fielding offers to sell 50% of their stake. There's a chance that Vici could end up buying this. In a typical Vegas fashion, I'm going to give the odds that Vici ends up with this property. And then in a surprising turn of events, we have a follow-up video. Remember our guy here that's in the pool. He has a nice watch. He's flashing all the Amex cards. And he's explaining how to do fraud, basically organizing a business for the sole purpose of taking credit and then using that credit to personally enrich himself at the expense of the banks. Well, in a surprise turn of events, our guy here has a response. He actually listened to the criticism. He saw it blow up a little bit on social media and he has a follow-up video. So we're gonna be looking up his follow-up response here and seeing what he has to say. So as always, we have a jam-packed episode, a lot to cover, a lot of news to go through, as well as a portfolio update. So let's go ahead and get started. Now the headline news of the day is that Seth Klarman, who is a highly respected investor, a super investor, he has a track record of beating the market, so he's one of the few that's actually created alpha for his shareholders, for his investors alongside of him. So he has a lot of clout. What he says has a lot of weight to it. And he went on to CNBC today and said that he believes we're in an everything bubble. Now, I must admit, my first initial reaction when I hear the term everything bubble and when I hear very smart super investors predicting everything bubbles is to tone out a little bit, to kind of just zone out because everything bubbles are predicted all the time. The everything bubble is so common that it's now an entry in Wikipedia where it has an extensive definition going through the impact of how everything seems to be overvalued or inflated all at the same time. So that's my bias on this. As soon as I hear this, I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm a little bit reluctant to believe it. But since Seth Klarman has so much clout and such a strong history of outperformance, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. So even though we have a formal definition of what the everything bubble is, I want to take a look at what he defines as the everything bubble and how we can escape it. Yeah. The first thing is we've been in an everything bubble, I think, that um, a lot of money has flowed into virtually everything. Um, historically low interest rates, even zero rates have um, precipitated that bubble. Um, you've also had a lot of changes in the business world. Technology has 
um, accelerated, if anything, and you've seen disruption of all kinds of businesses, which creates challenges and opportunities for investors. Um, so that's another thing. Um, some asset classes have become increasingly popular. Private credit has um, had, a, had a day in the sun. You've had um, uh, speculation during that bubble in all kinds of things, from crypto to meme stocks to SPACs, in, in a way that I think, and the book has some important reminders for people about the, the dangers of speculation and the importance of remembering what kind of environment you're in. Now, he listed off a number of things. Of course, we have the meme stocks, we have the SPACs, we have a lot of speculation in the market. He notes that we had record low interest rates for a long period of time over the past decade. We also have a lot of money flowing into everything. As he says it, investors are just buying everything everywhere, causing the everything bubble. So in Seth Klarman's mind, the past decade of performance in the stock market is more of a bubble than a deserved reward for investors carefully and prudently making investments. He thinks it's a result of all this monetary policy, all this loose buying from investors, and a lot of speculation at the same time. So that's Seth Klarman's definition of what's happened over the past 12 years. The everything bubble has been fueled by all of these factors, and he seems very reluctant to be bullish on the market. In fact, he seems just the opposite. He seems very concerned, very conservative, almost defensive with everything that he says. Now, he does go on to share his input and advice for investors today. This won't be the permanent condition, but we don't know what conditions we will experience. So I think every investor has that challenge that you have to look at the moment you're in and say, which part of this is real, which part of this may be enduring, and which part of this may look completely different as soon as tomorrow, and how do I position myself maintaining somewhat of a longer-term perspective because I think trying to trade day to day is not a game anybody really is well equipped to win. Look at the world today and see what's real and not real. How things are going to be shaped over the next five to 10 years and position our portfolios in a long-term structure based on how we believe things will really turn out. Avoid the crazes, the memes, the things that are short-term in nature. Now, next he goes on to give a definition I really love. They ask him about what a value investor really is, and he breaks down the false distinction between value and growth. Academic definition of value is by the stock that... Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's cheapest by the numbers. But I don't think that's what Graham and Dodd wanted. In fact, it's clear that they were talking about earnings power and the growth possibilities in a business, even if they're hard to determine. And so I think value has to be determined for every company. The way I think about the market is not that there are growth stocks and value stocks, 
but rather that all stocks may hold value, um, but that all stocks also could potentially be overvalued. So you have to have a mechanism, a rubric for figuring out the value of different kinds of assets, different kinds of businesses, and then figure out which ones are trading particularly mispriced. So growth is encompassed in value. It's part of the scope of value, just like the starting yield or the starting multiple is part of value. Now, Seth continues on with the idea that value and growth should not be separated. And he talks specifically about the type of companies investors should be focused on. In a world that's changing as fast as this one, it's really important to think about not just what are the earnings today. The earnings today may not be here tomorrow. They may be disrupted. The business may be gone or they may be 50 or 100% more. So I think investors need to take into account what are the longer term prospects for a business. I think investors have become vastly more sophisticated these days than in Graham and Dodd's era in terms of thinking about what causes a business to be resilient to competitive threats. Also, Warren Buffett has showed all of us the value of growth, that he um, thinks hard about some of the highest quality businesses in the world, but only buys them when they're at attractive prices. So he also notes Warren Buffett's advice of buying the best companies in the world, the highest quality ones, and trying to snag them for the best prices possible. Now, as this interview continues on, I noticed that Seth Klarman is far more cautious, less enthusiastic about the future than other investors like Warren Buffett. He seems to always have this posture giving warnings and giving doubt instead of giving optimism. But even as he's more cautious and reluctant to give a lot of optimism, he still has a lot of hope for investors today. One of the questions that he's asked is if he thinks the market has become too efficient. This is something that a lot of scholars would come up with. They'd say that the market is so efficient now that you can't possibly beat it. Here's what he has to say about the subject. There's a question in my mind about once the market becomes more efficient, whether it actually does um, have the likelihood of becoming less efficient afterwards. So for sure, there's more money in public markets, things have become somewhat more efficient. But I also see a short-term orientation that tells me that it's possible some pricing has actually become less efficient. I think when you look at Meta, uh, the stock's been all over the place in in a reasonably short period of time, um, falling to under 100, then rising back up to almost 300, literally months apart. Um, for a large, well-established company that I think everybody can analyze. So I think that there are opportunities. He notes Meta as a prime example of a company that's not been efficiently traded. The stock price is literally all over the place, going from $100 to $300 to $200. And this is a large cap, well-established company with legions of analysts covering the stock. And even a stock like that is not being efficiently traded on the stock market. So he does have hope for investors today. He does believe that there's still opportunities for investors to find excess value. But again, as I watch these interviews, I take some of the things with a grain of salt, even from great investors like Seth Klarman. The prediction that we're in an everything bubble, for example, is one that's very, very difficult to get accurately. And he's also made some predictions like this in the past. Here's an article from Business Insider. May 19th, 2010 was the published date. And the title of this article is Seth Klarman, Stocks Will Have Zero Returns for a Decade. He was predicting at the time that companies really wouldn't do well. He said, quote, given the recent run-up in stocks, I'd be worried that we'd have another 10 years of zero returns. Again, this is in 2010. He says, quote, I am more worried about the world broadly than I've ever been in my whole career. 
He said that stocks have, quote, rallied enormously and they're quite unattractive. These are all quotes of Seth Klarman's from 2010. Having the same posture back then that he does today, giving heed, giving warning, giving concern about the market and macroeconomics. But his prediction of a flat market for 10 years really didn't work out. Since he made those claims in 2010, the stock market is up over 300%, including dividends. The investor that sold out of the market or became overly concerned missed out on a huge opportunity cost with the equity markets rising higher and higher. So maybe his call today is correct. Maybe this is all a big bubble. But one thing I noticed about people predicting doom and gloom is they typically predict it every 10 years, and the market typically continues to trudge forward, going upwards year after year. And between listening to Seth Klarman or the thoughts of Warren Buffett on this subject, I'd rather follow Buffett, who remains very positive on the U.S. stock market. Now, we have some other big news here. There was a recent court filing that revealed an internal goal that the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, has for the revenue growth of the company by 2030. $500 billion, half a trillion dollars in 2030. And he says that that's a growth rate of at least 10% per year. Now, from this goal... If Microsoft was able to meet it, we can draw some conclusions. What Sachin Adela did here is he basically gave a little bit of a valuation framework to work off of. So what I wanted to do was add this to my list of valuations. In my last episode, I went through and did relative valuation from my portfolio to SPY, and I added in Sachin Adela's valuation to Microsoft. We have it right here, starting yield of 1.9%. We're going to look at the growth rate and the implied share price in 2030. Now, the first thing that we can do is look at Microsoft's cash flow conversion from their revenue. So right now, Microsoft has revenue of around $198 billion. That was 2022. And they successfully converted $200 billion of revenue into $65 billion of free cash flow. We do a little math there and divide the number by the number. We come up with a percentage of 32%. That sounds correct. 65 is roughly one third of 200. So we know that Microsoft right now has a free cash flow conversion of around 32%. And this is a company that already has very high margins. So I don't expect that this free cash flow conversion will really go up all that much over the next 10 years. It could, there's a chance it could if they cut back on CapEx. But just to be conservative, let's take this number. Now, at the end of 2030, the goal is to have $500 billion of revenue. 32% of $500 billion is $160 billion. So this is the total amount of free cash flow that Microsoft would produce in 2030 if they meet this goal and if they keep the same free cash flow conversion. Now, when we take that $160 billion and we look at the current market cap today, that gives us a free cash flow yield on 2030's cash flows at around 6.6%. That is the free cash flow yield on 2030's projected cash flows. Now, Microsoft typically does not trade at a 6.6% free cash flow yield. What cash flow yield it will trade at is up for debate, but based on the quality of the company, the diversified product offering, the reoccurring subscription, the high margin, and the incredible creditworthiness, I believe that Microsoft will trade around 25 to 3% free cash flow yield. So let's just assume for a minute here that the company trades at roughly a 3.3% free cash flow yield, just to make the math very simple. That means that the stock price in 2030 would be $662. 
it would be a double from where it is today. A double in seven years is about a 10% return, so that seems very reasonable. But we also have to keep in mind that the free cash flow growing is not the only thing that gives shareholder returns. There's a couple more things that may help out shareholders' total returns. Microsoft pays a growing dividend. For the past 10 years, it's grown at around 11% per year. This dividend should help out a little bit with the total returns. Another thing that may help out with Microsoft is the shares outstanding going down over time. They do around 1% of share buybacks per year. So based on these assumptions, we could see around a 12% total return for the next seven years. If we have the dividends being paid, the share buybacks, and the free cash flow generation that's consistent with Sachin Adela's projections. But also remember that this is an internal goal of Sachin Adela, not a guarantee. Now moving on, we have some big news here that I'm a little bit excited about, I have to admit. Even though we don't know exactly how this is going to turn out. Blackstone, which is a major investment firm, is said to weigh offers for a stake in the Bellagio Casino in Las Vegas. Now, if you're not too familiar with Vegas, you're familiar with Bellagio. It is the most iconic place in all of Vegas. It's one of the main centerpieces of the Las Vegas Strip, and it has the iconic fountains. They're in literally dozens of TV shows, dozens of movies. Anytime they do a shot of Vegas or a montage of Vegas, you're going to see the Bellagio Fountains. And they are pretty incredible in person. These things are like jets that shoot hundreds of feet in the air, and they're choreographed with music. It's a pretty cool event. The Bellagio in and of itself, I think, is one of the best properties in Vegas because of the iconic nature of it, because of where it's located. It's such a ritzy, high-end place in Vegas, an amazing property. But now we have Blackstone looking to exit out half of their stake, which they just bought a couple years ago. Let's go ahead and take a look at the specifics of what we know now. They say that Blackstone is fielding offers for half of its interest in the real estate of the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas, a property purchased almost four years ago at a price of $4.25 billion. So they just bought the thing a couple years ago for $4.25 billion. Now they're looking to sell half of their equity stake. Now, a lot of people might wonder right off the bat, what is Blackstone's motivations? Why are they trying to dump their equity stake in this property? That's a complicated question. Big firms like Blackstone are always looking to raise equity, to raise capital from different sources in any way that they can. If they see different opportunities, they'll look for raising capital to buy those different opportunities. If they have clients that are withdrawing money or big partners that are withdrawing money, they need to raise capital to provide that, that money to their partners. There's a lot of reasons that investors, including large firms like Blackstone, sell. So just the fact that they're selling the property is not a red flag to me. This doesn't cause me any concern whatsoever. Bellagio is packed. The prices are high. The Bellagio is right front and center of the Formula One event happening soon. The tickets for this are astronomical. The four-day race ticket is only 2827 per person. For the better package, the one that includes hospitality access, is 11000 247 per person for three days. 
That is the prices these things are going for. So the Bellagio is doing just fine. The demand is there. The hotel's selling out all of its rooms every single night, and especially for special events. Why is Blackstone selling this property? There could be a thousand different reasons, but we know for sure that the Bellagio being in trouble is not one of them. Another thing that Blackstone has done is they're selling real estate across their entire portfolio, exiting out of warehouses and industrial properties. So this is more of a macroeconomic positioning of their portfolio than anything specific to the Bellagio. In my opinion, I think this is a mistake from Blackstone. Even though the overall commercial real estate properties may be having trouble, the Bellagio and casinos are an entirely different breed with different tenants with different demand. So this is not something that I'm concerned about in terms of the property itself. Now they mention here that the Bellagio is one of the top performing resorts in the city's famous strip. It's operated under a long-term lease by MGM Resorts International. Traffic to Las Vegas hotels has remained strong, even as other real estate sectors such as malls and office space have weakened. Traffic in Vegas continues to be strong, I'm projecting that it will be strong over the next couple of years. The only thing that could really put a damper in that is a very bad recession, and it doesn't look like we're getting that just now. So we know that the property's up for sale, and this is a good property. Who are the potential buyers of this property? Well, one of those is a large holding in my portfolio. In the real estate category, I only have one holding, which remains Vici. One of my long-term compounding positions, a company that I think has phenomenal assets located across the U.S. and even some international, like in Canada. But Vici owns a majority of iconic locations, iconic real estate in Vegas. Those are their crown jewels, owning the Venetian, owning the Mirage, owning so many MGM properties, Caesars and all of their properties. Vici owns a ton of Vegas real estate. And I know for a fact that this company is incredibly bullish on Vegas. They would like to own the entire strip if they could. And one of the properties that Ed Petoniak, the CEO of Vici, has specifically outlined as an incredible property in Vegas that he would love to own is the Bellagio. He's pointed at that one specifically, and he was saddened that Blackstone got to it before he could. So I think it's incredibly likely that Vici is on the phone trying to work out a deal that makes sense for the shareholder. And I believe that if they can have it make sense, if they can get it for a price where it's accretive to AFFO, I think Vici's going to buy this thing. I think there's a very high probability of it. I would give the odds right now around 60%. I think that's the chance that Vici ends up buying this. They're one of the few REITs with the scale, with the balance sheet, with the credibility to be able to own it. They're one of the few REITs that has the expertise, the management that has dealt with these type of properties. And they're one of the ones that has the willingness to take on this big of a purchase. So I think a lot of the stars have aligned for Vici to buy this property. Now there are other contenders. There's other companies that could own this. One of them is Realty Income Corp. Realty Income Corp is long known for being the monthly dividend payer. It's a company that owns a lot of real estate that houses stuff like Home Depot, uh, Lowe's. They own a lot of investment grade real estate, but they've shown a willingness to even change their business model and follow Vici into these entertainment casino and resort properties. Realty Income Corp recently purchased with a leaseback sale, the Encore Boston Harbor from Wynn. This is a massive property that they bought for $1.7 billion. 
So this shows a validation of what Vici's doing, and it also shows, and it also shows that there's other companies wising up, wanting to get in on these deals. So Vici's a potential buyer. We also have Realty Income Corp, which I could see making this deal as well. If they really fought for it, I think they could make the deal. And then there's other investment firms that are large enough to be buying this stake. So there is a chance that Vici doesn't end up with this property. If they get outbid by someone to the extent that they can't make money, or if Blackstone is trying to get prices that Vici really doesn't want to pay, that could be one reason why. But I think there's a good chance they make a deal. They're in a good position to do so, and I believe they'll really want this property. So we'll have to see how things turn out. Either way, it's an exciting time to be a Vici shareholder. Now, in a rare turn of events, we have a follow-up to one of the TikToks that we goofed on in our last episode. We just made a fun video reacting to it because sometimes people have a tendency in some rare cases to say some goofy things on TikTok. And especially when it comes to financial advice or business advice, TikTok has some of the best the best looks at what people view as financial advice. In this case, it was this individual, I, I don't know his name, but he's giving advice of basically how to spin up a business, create a business license, take out a bunch of credit cards and credit lines, use those credit cards to buy things like expensive watches, sell them to pawn shops, and then declare bankruptcy with your business. And he acted as though this is something where you're not personally liable because you have a business license. It's not under your personal name. Obviously, there's numerous reasons of why this wouldn't work, why you would be prosecuted, why this is basically fraud, so on and so forth. Now, with this original TikTok, I didn't know if he was being serious here or not. I couldn't quite tell, but he really gives no indication that he's joking. He is somewhat serious throughout the entire thing. Now, this TikTok blew up online. He got a huge response, and a lot of people concluded, as I did, that he's basically describing fraud here and telling people to follow him on instructions on how to commit this fraud. But here we have his response as a follow-up. The funniest part about this whole video is how many of you guys thought I was being serious. You had to be stupid to believe that you can open a brand new business, get American Express, and be able to spend $100,000 without any history in a business or any of that kind of shit. I was trolling another TikTok video I saw, and y'all blew it up like I knew what happened. And now everyone's commenting, fraud this, fraud that, fraud this, but there's no proof of me for anything because it was all complete bullshit. It was all a joke all along. After being told that this was fraud over and over again, he now has this follow-up video saying this was... This is all a joke. It was just a prank, bro. I was just pretending. This wasn't me being serious at all. Now, it's impossible to tell if he really was joking in the first TikTok or if this is an attempt to save himself and just explain that it was a joke because he got called a fraud a lot of times. But either way, one thing I know from ample social media experience and doing YouTube for a while is if you're joking about something, especially something as important as explaining how to commit fraud, you may want to explain clearly that it's a joke somewhere. Maybe in a follow-up comment under the video, maybe make it a little bit more sarcastic so people can clearly tell it's a joke because the first TikTok leaves a, a little bit to the imagination and there's always some cases of being misinterpreted. But there we have it. It was just a prank. All of you are fools for believing him in the first one. Now that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed. I'll have more content out this week, so make sure you subscribe to the channel, turn on the bell icon so you get notifications, and I'll see you in the next one.